Well, last week, Pastor Alex preached a great sermon as we kicked off our Advent series focused on how God is with us. God being with us is core to our theology as Christians. It's a simple way of articulating a more complex theological truth, which is that we believe in an incarnational God. An incarnational God. Now, that's a fancy $3 church word, right? Incarnational simply means that God came in our flesh, that our God is a God that draws near to God's people. We believe in a God who is an Emmanuel God, a God with us. And we're exploring these weeks of Advent, how God is with us in the midst of our confusing, sometimes disorienting humanity. And last week, Alex had a good reminder for us that during this season, we are called to wait, and that waiting is often a part of our human experience. We wait in lines. We wait for test results. We wait to meet that significant other. We wait all throughout our lives. And Alex had a healthy uh, caution for us not to busy ourselves or to hurry our hands or to uh, give ourselves over to idle tasks to try to pass the waiting um, with just a, a hurried, rushed, confusing mind, but to embrace seasons of waiting. But waiting can be really difficult, can it? Especially for the youngest disciples around us. Now, Becca and I have three young children in our household, and the month of December is that time where for families with children, it, uh, waiting can feel like uh, it takes forever because we're all waiting for Christmas, for the joy of what is to come, the, the hope of presents being around a tree. It's a, a time where for a lot of families, it's filled with great energy and excitement and also um, a heightened level of emotions where siblings can go at each other. It's just a frenzy. Even more so in our household, I think, a little bit because one of our children, Noah, December is his birthday month, and today, Noah turns seven. Today is Noah's birthday. And it's been fun to think about uh, this season for Noah. Really, it starts, I think, for him right after Halloween, when November rolls around. Noah starts asking us, how many more days until my birthday? And then after that, how many days until Christmas? And as each day or week passes, Noah wants to know even more so. How how much longer? Noah is very much, like most children, in touch with what he's waiting for. He lets us know what he's waiting for. I want this for my birthday. I'd like that for Christmas. And if you were to ask any young child, what are you waiting for this Christmas? Without fail, they will probably tell you something material because they're a child. It makes sense. Maybe it's the latest Barbie or gadget or trampoline or bicycle. If you were to ask, though, most parents, most grandparents, most caregivers, What do you long for your child the most? What do you want for your child more than anything? Without fail, 
it will not be a material item. It will be immaterial. I want my child to be whole. I want my children to be happy. I want them to live a fulfilled life. I want them, in other words, to flourish in life. I believe that God's biggest longing, God's deepest desire for humanity is the same desire that we feel as parents or grandparents, aunts or uncles, for the little people in our lives. I believe God wants us to flourish. Not in material ways, in immaterial ways. God wants us to have a depth of relationship, of friendship. God wants us to have purpose and meaning in our lives. We see this woven into the very fabric of Scripture from the very beginning. You remember the story of Genesis, how God, out of nothing, created everything. And at the center of that everything God created, God entrusted humanity, Adam and Eve, with with the pleasures of the kingdom. Actually, God put them in the midst of a garden that was lush and vibrant. And God said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. God's desire is that they would enjoy creation. God's desire is always that we would caretake, not just for our own gain, but for the gain of others. This week, we turn our focus in this sermon series to the ways that God has invited us not only to wait, but to prepare, to get ready. Last week, Alex told us, don't jump to preparing. So it's been a little hard to write this sermon because I still have your sermon in my mind. Last week, Alex stood up here just like this, and he said, you know what pastors like to say, wait actively. I'm going to prepare by waiting. Well, now I have to preach the sermon about waiting actively. So thank you. Thank you for that, Alex. But it's week two, not week one. We are called to prepare. We have these longings. We have these desires. And yet, we don't just sit around waiting for something to happen. We have work to do to prepare. And so we hear from John the Baptist. And at first glance, this reading might seem really simple. The people are coming from the Judean countryside and Jerusalem out to John. Where is John located? Did you pick it up in the reading? Shout it out. He's at the river. Which river? The Jordan River. And at first glance, it just seems like a small detail. It's actually critical to us interpreting this passage. At first glance, the people are just coming out, confessing all of the wrong things they've done. They're receiving forgiveness. They're baptized. And John is reminding them of the prophet Isaiah, who reminded God's people years and years before to prepare their hearts for the coming of what God is about to do. Someone more powerful than him is coming. We know this to be Christ. 
And John is calling the people to repent, to turn in a new direction, to receive forgiveness, to prepare for what's about to happen by naming all of those things for which you need forgiveness so that you can embrace the new season ahead with a clean, whole, refreshed heart. What we often miss is the historical significance of what John is actually inviting the people into. The Jordan River is central to understanding this story, and it goes all the way back to the biblical history of Abraham and Sarah. Abraham and Sarah were people at the time known as Abram and Sarai, and they had a deep longing within them. They wanted to have children. And yet they were old in age, well beyond childbearing years. And so they felt as if all hope was lost. The deepest longing of Sarai's heart, of Abram's heart, felt like such a distant, impossible thing. And yet God came to them and God made a threefold promise, a threefold blessing to Abram and Sarai. God said, first, I will make you into a great nation. The first part of God's blessing for them was that their descendants would outnumber the stars in the sky. It felt impossible, and yet how could it not excite Abraham and now Sarah with the promise of what God was going to do through them? In other words, the deepest longing of your heart will come to pass because God understands what you long for. Secondly, God made the promise that you will have a land. You will have a place where all of your descendants can inhabit and can live and can prosper. It will be a land of milk and honey, otherwise known as the promised land. And thirdly, God made the promise and the blessing that through you, through your family, all the nations of the world will be blessed. A threefold promise. Your descendants will be great. You will have a land to inhabit. And through you, all the nations will be blessed. We know there were twists and turns to this story, though. Through the descendants of Abraham and Sarah, God's people ended up slaves in Egypt for 400 years. God raised up Moses who went to Pharaoh, who led the people out of slavery and into the wilderness where for 40 years they wandered as they were waiting for the second part of the promise. All the while in the season of waiting and preparing, God was multiplying the numbers of the people out in the desert. And at the end, the penultimate scene in the life and ministry of Moses, the people are being led through the desert And they come to this precipice. They come to this this inflection point in the life of their people. And they're standing where? On the banks of the Jordan River. And in order to inhabit the land that God had promised, all of the people who had been through slavery, who have wandered, who have longed, who have waited, they have to pass through the waters. Imagine the multitude of people going down into the river, floating, swimming, wading their way into the promised land. You see, as the people entered the land God promised, they were washed. 
And they came through on the other side and they found the land God had promised. And it was precisely there that they were to set up camp to grow, to govern, so that all the nations of the world could be blessed. And yet, the people had forgotten the third part of the blessing. You see, the people entered the promised land. Their numbers grew large. They had multiplied, but they turned inward. And it wasn't the first time that the people had done it either. Think all the way back to Genesis. God created the garden, the land the people could flourish. God told Adam and Eve to multiply, to be fruitful, to fill the land, to care for all that God had made. And then in the turn of a dime, just like that, Cain turns against his brother Abel. Cain grows with jealousy, a scarcity mindset. It simply happened again. As the people entered the promised land, they fortified walls to keep others out. They grew wary of the stranger, and they lost sight of their mandate to bless all the nations of the world. They took the threefold promise of God, and they wanted to remove the third part of it. Their relationship with God had become all about what God had promised me and what God had given us and they lost sight that they were blessed to be a blessing. That's why John, in other uh, Gospels, at this scene at the Jordan River, as the Pharisees and the Sadducees came down to the river, what does he call them? You brood of vipers! Who warned you? John is angry that those in charge had forgotten the mandate. And so what is John doing at the Jordan River? He's inviting the people back to the very waters that they had to pass through in order to inhabit the land to remind them of who they are and what they are called to do. John, in other words, is saying, as we wait, as we long for the Messiah to come, we need to go back through those same waters. We need to enter this land for a second time, remembering why it was given to us. Because Christ is coming to turn the world upside down. To show us what it means to love others. To show us what it means to pour out your life. To show us what it means to be a true king. A true prince of peace. One who when taken up to the precipice of the mountain and shown all the kingdoms of the world did not have them bow down at his feet, but rather would be a king who would get down on his hands and knees and wash the feet of the disciples. You see, Jesus lived his life with such a clear ethic. He understood who he was, what God had given him, and why God had done it in the first place. Jesus came to show us what a servant life looks like. And so this Advent, as we prepare our hearts to receive Christ again, as we prepare our minds to hear the story again of God coming from heaven to earth in the form of an infant who was wrapped three times. First, wrapped in cloth and laid in a manger. Second, wrapped in a towel, washing feet. And third, wrapped holy and thrown in a tomb, 
that our God is a God who comes to wrap the world in righteousness, in love, in peace. What does it mean for you this Advent to go through the waters of the Jordan again? What does it mean for you? You see, we're not unlike Cain or Abel. We're not unlike God's people who take all of the blessings, all of the gifts, and grow forgetful. What are your Jordan? What is your Jordan River? This season, I guarantee you one thing. In two weeks, it will be Christmas. And we will unwrap gifts, and we will open presents, and we will go to the family party, and in the blink of an eye, all the New Year's advertisements will come on TV, and we'll be thinking about how we need to lose that extra five pounds and make resolutions, and before you know it, we'll be at Valentine's Day, and the cycle keeps spinning. There's an opportunity for God's people in worship these next two weeks to slow down and to remember that God indeed wants to bless us. God has promised to do so. God has promised that we would be a great nation. God has promised that we would have everything we need if we trust in God so that we could bless the world not just be blessed ourselves. In a matter of moments, we'll be invited to this table. It's not the Jordan River, but it represents something very similar. It represents God's blessing, God's outpouring. And as you come to this table to receive bread and wine, may you know that no matter how forgetful you've become, no matter how much you've turned this relationship with God into this self-exercise of self-fulfillment, that God still desires to feed us, to nourish us with his very body. Not just so that we can be filled up with Jesus. I've got Jesus in me. (laughs) So that we could take that nourishment, that fuel, that life source out into the world to bless and feed others. We are blessed to be a blessing. Amen.